0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the
0: smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on the Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone's heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. Just act like you know what you're doing until you actually know what you're doing. But some of us keep feeling like we're faking it long after we've made it. And that feeling can haunt you for your whole career. And it's called imposter syndrome. This is Game Plan. Hi, I'm Francesca Levy. And I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And today we're talking about imposter syndrome.
1: Yeah, this is a phrase that gets used a lot in the how to be a woman in the workplace (laughs) world that I spend a lot of time in.
0: Yeah, it feels kind of recent and buzzwordy, but it's actually been around for some time. It was coined by some clinical psychologists in the late 70s. And it basically just describes this phenomenon of feeling like you're a fraud uh, no matter how long you've been doing something. And despite all evidence to the contrary. So basically, like nothing can convince you that you're not going to one day get exposed as a complete fake. Yeah,
1: I had an acute experience of imposter syndrome very recently.
0: Yeah, you were telling me about this. I think this is like the perfect example of imposter syndrome.
1: I was asked to moderate a panel at the Tribeca Film Festival. and Big deal when the woman reached out to me, she said that she saw that I had written an article about Hedy Lamarr and there was a biopic about her and they wanted me to moderate the panel on her. I'd written this article in 2011. So when she reached out to me, I said, I wrote this article five, six years ago. I don't cover entertainment. I never moderated a panel. Like, can you, you, you've got the wrong person. Yeah. You were literally like, I, you made a mistake. You called up
0: the wrong number right and you i felt don't want the need to tell
1: her that to be like you you gotta you gotta know and she said i googled you like i know what you do now <laughs> and she assured me that journalists are good moderators and that you know i would be great for this but i still had this nagging sensation that i was just like faking it basically yeah
0: you had you felt the need to justify yourself or tell her you weren't qualified meanwhile like She's the one who decides if you're qualified. She's picking the people to be on this panel. And she knew who you were and decided like that's all that's all the qualification you need is that somebody decided you should be the moderator for this panel. But that's what imposter syndrome is about. It's like even if other people think you're good at something, they must have it slightly wrong. They
1: don't know the
0: real. They they
1: need the facts. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They
0: need your whole history. I've had similar experiences with this. And one of the things that came to mind when we were talking about imposter syndrome was how I've basically had a decent career in media. I've always had staff jobs at big media companies ever since I finished graduate school about 10 years ago. And as you know, in our industry, it's it's kind of hard to get a staff job. A lot of people work freelance either by choice or just because they, they can't get um, salary jobs at sort of journalism outlets. And whenever people ask me about my career outcomes, I always describe myself as extremely lucky for having that, like those back-to-back staff jobs. And luck is this word that I think is associated with imposter syndrome, because when I say I'm lucky, I'm sort of referring to other people in my field who I know are also really good journalists and just haven't been able to land staff jobs. So I feel this need to point out that like, Yeah, I may be good enough to get a staff job, but lots of people are good enough to get staff jobs and didn't. And so I'm just a lucky one.
1: Yeah, you're apologizing to those people or like on behalf of them. It's like this all messed up thing. You feel the need to say that they, too, could have gotten the job or something. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's just the luck of the draw that I got it. and. You know, I look back on it. And, no, there was plenty of hard work there. Yeah, and it's not you can to say both that
1: be hardworking and qualified and someone else can be hardworking and qualified and that person not get the job that you have.
0: Yeah. And I want to talk about a related concept to this, which is the fake it till you make it idea, which is such a cliche. But it, it seems to me like this common advice that everybody in their career makes just like act more competent than you are. And then you'll get this feedback you know, because people will be impressed by your confidence and they'll treat you like you're better at your job and they'll give you better assignments and that will give you even more confidence. And then eventually, like the confidence becomes real and the skills become real in this sort of virtuous cycle. And it's like a career strategy. I think a lot of people employ, but then it kind of feeds imposter syndrome because you worry, I think, that you'll be discovered as a fake if you're going into a situation and consciously faking it.
1: Yeah. I think the difference to me is the confidence in yourself. Like someone can be faking it till they make it and they, they know they're going to make it. Like they have so much confidence. They're like, oh, I can fake this until I make it. And then there's the person who's like, oh, I'm just faking it until I make it. And um, then when they make it, they still are going to have that lack of confidence in themselves. And I think that is imposter syndrome. Right.
0: Yeah. A lot of the In a lot of the reading that we've been doing about imposter syndrome, people who are hugely successful but talk about feeling this way um, have said that they've partly dealt with it by just kind of accepting everyone is faking some part of what they're doing at any given moment. You know, they're they're pretending or glossing over ways in which they might not be perfect at every single aspect of their job. And so it's actually not that productive to dwell on whether your confidence in something is real or not. And fake it till you make it turns out to be a pretty useful strategy. Um, I found some cool research showing that it actually works. Um, There was a study where people were given a math quiz and one group was told that they had been flashed the answers on a screen so quickly that they couldn't register it consciously. Of course, they hadn't. They had just been shown like garbled whatever. And the other group hadn't. The group that thought that they knew the answers to the test did better on the test. So even though they didn't actually have any more knowledge, just thinking they had more knowledge helped them do better. There's another cool study where people were put in a flight simulator and given fighter pilot clothes and given all this feedback that was fighter pilot-ish. And they ended up doing better on a vision test than people who were just put in the flight simulator without all that feedback. So you adopt the costume and the posture of someone who's good at something. You get good at it.
1: That kind of says to me that imposter syndrome can be really bad for you then, because if you think you have all the knowledge and tools, even though you don't, that's not imposter syndrome, right? That's the opposite. Right. right. Then you do well on the test or you're the pilot. Yeah. You're the good pilot. But yeah. if you're constantly have self-doubt, that, I,
0: that must have some negative impact. Right. You're like rewarded for being ignorant about how bad you are at something. Yeah. <laughs> but you're punished if you're good at something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think everyone experiences imposter syndrome. Absolutely. And anybody who is more marginalized is is going to feel more fraudulent.
0: I think actually this is why um, women might have a, a stronger or different experience of imposter syndrome, because you get a lot of external validation for the idea that maybe you don't belong in the workplace if you're a woman or, as you say, if you're a part of any marginalized group, if you're a person of color, or a person with a disability, you're getting these external messages that other people don't value your work as much. And so that's only going to feed your insecurities about that. Mm-hmm. And somebody who described the difference between men and women and how they experience imposter syndrome really well is our guest, Dr. Suzanne Coven, who wrote an article called Letter to a Young Young female physician. And in it, she said, I believe that women's fear of fraudulence is similar to men's, but with an added feature. Not only do we tend to perseverate over our inadequacies, we also often denigrate our strengths. To hear more about what she means by that and why she wrote a letter to young female physicians, we're happy to welcome Dr. Suzanne Coven. Suzanne Coven is a primary care doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, where she is also a writer-in-residence, and she's on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. So uh, start by telling us why you decided to frame the advice article that you wrote about imposter syndrome as a letter to young female physicians?
2: Well, what happened was uh, last June, when the uh, incoming interns uh, were going through orientation at my hospital, I was invited to participate in this wonderful exercise where the interns were asked to write a letter to themselves. And the letters were then sealed and collected, and they were to be handed out to them. Uh, at an intern retreat in January so six months into their internship and uh, the idea that was they would open these letters six months down the road and and they would just see how far they had come and as I sat there watching them you know hunched earnestly over these letters I had uh, this very powerful feeling of uh, wanting to address my younger self when I was in their shoes 30 years earlier, uh, and particularly as a woman, because, in fact, uh, I was delighted to see that more than half of the incoming interns in the room were women.
1: Why did you decide to focus on imposter syndrome in particular?
2: Because what I realized as I was writing this letter to myself, you know, is that the thing I wished I had known starting out was that while I would experience some sexism as a woman in a male-dominated profession, that the thing that would cause me the most conflict would be a voice in my head perpetually telling me that I wasn't good enough that I wasn't as good as my peers, and that even, and this was really the, the sort of the step further, that the things I was good at didn't count particularly.
0: Yeah, you write in your article that this feeling of being a fraud is more insidious than sexism itself. I'm wondering why you think female physicians in particular need to know about this imposter syndrome feeling. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't want to underplay the damage that overt sexism can do. I mean, uh, we have to remember that even today, as I point out in the essay, um, you know, women uh, in medicine have not achieved pay equality with men. We are grossly uh, underrepresented in leadership positions, even in fields where we represent the majority, like pediatrics and OBGYN. But for me, uh, personally, uh, the, the, the piece that was so damaging was this constant nagging feeling of self-doubt. And as to why it's more in women, you know, I, I think that what it has to do with is having internalized the overt sexism. So the two things aren't really different. You understand what I mean by that? that yeah. They're not completely separate issues. And I've gotten so much mail since this piece appeared and from all around the world. And most of it is from women, though many men and many older women and uh, indeed uh, many people not in medicine have at all have told me that it spoke to them. But the ones that I, I find most heartbreaking are from young women, particularly uh, young women of color who tell me, I don't feel I will ever be accepted, I will ever be good enough. And that, of course, is an internalization of not only sexism, but racism. The other piece of this, though, is not only self doubt, but this second part that I referred to, which is feeling that, you know, it's a variation on the old Groucho Marx line. I, I wouldn't join a club that would have me for a member, which is, if I am good at something, it must not be worth much. I have a friend who calls this the syndrome of, yeah, I got in, but that was the year they didn't have very many applicants, (laughs) or a sort of, well, we might call it asterisk syndrome. Yeah, I got that position, but, you know, there must have been some reason I got it and not on my merit. And... You know, I think particularly uh, for women in medicine, there is this long tradition of a false dichotomy between compassion and competence, and that is gendered. So uh, many years ago, the way that played out was that the doctors were men and the nurses were women, and the doctors gave the orders and knew the stuff. And the nurses, who were women, provided the hands-on compassionate care. Well, of course, that was sort of a stereotype, but it was never really true. And it still isn't true. I think there are a lot of women, and this certainly has been a theme in, in my inner life during my long career, think, well, you know, the reason I'm good at this is that I'm a good listener and I'm empathic, But anybody could do that. That's not really an important skill, except that it's a very important skill, and not everybody can do that. And so, as I said in the piece, my observation is that women not only focus on our deficiencies or our self-perceived deficiencies, we also denigrate our own strengths.
1: It sounds like now you have perspective to appreciate the skills that you do have, including some of these more empathic skills that maybe the labor force or people around us don't recognize as real work. But in your piece, you also talk about how you overcompensated for this feeling and you you did all these things that you tried to give yourself more experience and that that didn't really work. At what point did you just stop doing that?
2: I wish I could you that that it wasn't so recently. But it, it really is, is rather recent. And, you know, it's funny, as I was writing this piece, this pattern that I really hadn't thought about as a pattern uh, became clear to me just as I was writing it, this overcompensation. You know, one of the examples I give is that I decided I should specialize in gastroenterology because gastroenterologists do stuff. And if you do stuff, then your competency could never possibly be questioned. The only problem was I wasn't interested in gastroenterology. So it took me a really, really long time to begin to be true to myself. And I think what ultimately I came to terms with is that, you know, in primary care, there are patients I've been, you know, seeing and had a relationship with for 25 years at this point. And I realized that the relationship that I build with them is not an insignificant part of their healing. You know, this this empathy thing, this relationship building thing, this communication thing, this isn't just the warm, squishy you know, extra stuff. This is really at the center of medicine. And I think, you know, once I came to terms with that, I sort of let go of some of the perfectionism, which made me feel that I was supposed to be everything. I was supposed to have an A-plus in every, every possible subject. And I realized that people have different strengths, and my particular strength is... Is not an insignificant one.
0: I wonder how much it actually helped to just get more experience, to log mm-hmm. more years in your career. You know, we rattled off your accomplishments at the top of the of the segment, but you are obviously very good and very experienced, and have all the credentials now. How did that affect the feeling of imposter syndrome?
2: Well, it's not so much uh, accumulating accolades as accumulating years. And I think, you know, as the years have gone by, I've been both less reticent about admitting my own imperfections uh, and vulnerabilities. And also, on the other side of the coin, I'm less reticent about tooting my own horn, which women uh, are not as good at as we should be. Um, With regard to those accolades, I have to tell you, uh, getting back to the very first question you asked me, which is why did I put this in letter form, it felt intuitively important to me to be able to sign this letter to Sam Coven M.D., Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and to say, hey, here I am, you know, at the Mecca, and I have had these thoughts I've had them a lot. And the response I've gotten to this piece tells me that, you know, that felt validating for people. And I feel good about that. I feel good about the response. But I also, uh, of course, feel a little sad that 30 years down the road, particularly young women are still struggling so mightily with this.
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of young women in all professions feel this. I feel this. I know Francesca has felt it. And I think well, we naming, all frauds. Yeah. Well, it's impossible. <laughs> I mean, just but, statistically, <laughs> um, naming, it's really important and knowing that other really accomplished people and women experience it feels good to hear. But I'm wondering what is the advice for someone young who has these feelings, but we don't really know how to overcome.
2: Oh, golly. Well, it's funny. Uh, just to, again, um, I I keep going back to these many, many emails I've received. I've just been so moved by them. What I'm hearing uh, is a lot of isolation. I'm hearing a lot of, I've never talked with anybody about this before. And yet, there are so many people who feel this way that I've got to think that at least a partial remedy is for young women or young professionals of of both genders, to be gathering and talking openly about this kind of stuff. I I, I think that would help a lot. I mean, if 10 of your young colleagues got together and had this conversation, don't you think that that would go a long way to sort of feeling less isolated, stigmatized, tortured in your own head? I certainly would have, you know, when I was starting out of course there was absolutely no outlet for that then.
0: Yeah, when we started talking about this um episode we were working on to people, there were definitely a few people who thought who told us that they didn't even know there was a name for this feeling. Mm-hmm. So so talking about it we often come to that trite conclusion that talking Talk about talking about things more is the answer <laughs> but in this case it, it really seems like putting a name on it is a big part of understanding how universal it is and so well, right. they do... and, I
2: mean we, we, we laughed before when I said well we can't statistically speaking we can't all be fraud right but uh, you know I think um, as with anything you you ruminate over and don't discuss openly uh, you know it begins to sort of Uh, take on a life of its own in your head and you you know you don't get a reality check about it and I think you know if everybody feels this way then you know clearly it's a pretty normal way to feel and of course what compounds feeling like an imposter is the shame of feeling that you're the only one who feels that way which of course you're not
0: well, thank you for helping us fight that shame and talk I'm, about it. I'm telling um, you, you guys got to
2: you guys got to plan the party,
1: <laughs> imposter syndrome party. Absolutely,
2: <laughs> believe me, they'll they'll be standing room only. <laughs> really,
0: thank you so much for talking to us, Suzanne.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure.
1: So Dr. Coven is at the end of her career, and
0: she said, like, basically last month she got over her imposter syndrome. You could feel kind of depressed by hearing somebody say that, you know, even with all that success, they still experience imposter syndrome. But I actually think that that's just proof that success itself isn't the cure to this thing. So it, it must not be about whether or not you're really a fake And that actually, if you can look at somebody like that and say, "Okay, they have all the credentials and they still have these worries. So there there must be another reason for it. And to me, what I took away from everything she said was that it doesn't really matter where you are in your career or how good you are even at something. Um, You probably are kind of you probably are worse at some things than some of your colleagues. You're probably also better at some things than you give yourself credit for. And the question of whether or not you're like for real is so unproductive and is not going to help you with the ultimate thing that you want, which is to get really good. So you may as well put it aside altogether.
1: And imposter syndrome. Banish imposter syndrome from your brain. I mean, (laughs) mean, it's hard, but it's hard. But I mean, yeah, knowing it exists and then. Maybe every time the thought creeps into your brain, you can say, "This is not a real thing."
0: Yeah, like it's it's easier said than done to stop thinking about something. But if you if you're armed with the knowledge that like people feel this way even when they're really experienced, that other people are all feeling the same way, and you know all this, then you can say, "Okay, that feeling is there. Let me put it aside and just do my job." I
1: like this. It's a very like therapist. thing to say. I feel
0: like we really dug in. This is a highly therapeutic episode. Um, Let's do some non-therapeutic half-baked takes. Half-baked takes. If you would like us to hear your half-baked take, you can tweet it at us or you can call and leave a message on our voicemail. It's 212-617-0166. This week, we found a half-baked take in the wild. Wow, Becca, Let's explain to our listeners what that is.
1: So sometimes we'll be reading the internet and see what we think would make a great half-baked take that somebody has tweeted or they've written an article and we share it with each other. But, you know, we don't have... There's nowhere for it to live in our world. So I saw a really great one this week on Jezebel that I thought would make a perfect half-baked take. And I just want to celebrate this great idea. It's called Just Give It Seven Seconds. It's by Leah Beckman. And she talks about that feeling when you do something that's socially awkward and you marinate over it for a really long time. Do you know the feeling? Yes. So her advice is to give yourself seven seconds to worry about whatever it is you did and then stop thinking about it. It's very related to our imposter syndrome advice.
0: Yeah, I was going to say this is a Perfectly practical application of our just stop thinking about it rule for imposter syndrome.
1: Maybe that should be our imposter syndrome advice. You get to think about it for seven seconds and then put it out of your mind. You get seven seconds to feel like a fraud and
0: then you have to be done. Great. Love this half-baked
1: take in the wild. Wow.
0: Francesca, what is your half-baked take for the week? I want people to know that when they do this particular passive-aggressive power move I'm about to describe... I see them and I know what they're doing. It is um, apologizing for being late or saying that you're coming in late when you're coming in at a perfectly acceptable time. Like you're going to be in the office at 920 and you send an email to like some of your most important colleagues and you say, uh, I'm, I'm going to show up to work a little late this morning around nine 20. What you're really saying is normally I get to work at 830 and I want you all to know it. I
1: am the type of person who freaks out when I'm late. Like I can't I think you are someone who, like just let me know. Are you someone who's late to hang out with your friends all the time, Francesca? I have occasionally <laughs> been late. But there are people who being late, it doesn't bother them. For me,
0: no. it like eats it's like imposter syndrome. It eats yep. away at my soul. It bothers me. But that's okay, being late to hang out with your friends is different because everyone has agreed yeah. on an on an Pointed time, and there are some workplaces where everyone just has to be at work at the same time. Ours is not like that. Like some, you kind of show up at whatever time makes sense for your job. So some people do show up at eight or earlier. Some people show up at nine thirty, and it. So you're only late if you're like late for a meeting or you're late by your own standards. So I should have specified that this this is really a thing people do in flex time offices. It's it's basically the equivalent of. Walk, like, inviting somebody into your home and apologizing for it being a total mess when it's perfectly clean and you know it's perfectly clean. Yeah, true.
1: Well, maybe I'm just one of those people.
0: <laughs> how how messy is your apartment right now?
1: It could use some cleaning. Liar. <laughs> Becca, what is your half-baked take? So, I've discovered this great new soundtrack, Hamilton. Uh, okay. <laughs> Which I know I'm almost two years late. But I think it's really fun. Here's my half-baked take. I think it's really fun to get into cultural phenomena years late.
0: Okay. Do you have an explanation or is that the end?
1: I think it's like you don't have to be involved in like the take economy. You can really let your opinion be your opinion. It's also fun. There's like a whole thing I get to do now that I know Mm -hmm. everyone really liked. I do this a lot with TV shows. I like binging as many people do. And it's nice to have like six seasons of Mad Men three years after it's off air and then you can go back and find the think pieces that you like and kind of I have like little conversations yeah. with the critics I like.
0: You but you don't have to experience it in real time or like right. worry about spoilers because no, you have, have to look pretty hard to find the spoilers. Right.
1: And it kind of like you can get overloaded I think in the time. There are things I've been up on in real time and you just get sick of it. It's yeah. just a nicer time scale. So I think you should... You know, find something that people were
0: into that you weren't into, and just dig in. Yep, I'm totally with you on this, and I experienced this over the weekend because I just started the HBO show Westworld, which people were like very into circa seven or eight months yeah. ago, and it's perfect. I can enjoy it without the, I like I don't, I, you know, I only have vague memories of the critical reception and but the things annoying. people were saying people about it. People are at the annoying. Time. Yeah, and I don't have to. I don't have to experience any undercurrent of zeitgeist around it. I can just watch it for what it is. And this has been Half Big Takes.
1: Half Big Takes.
0: Thanks for listening to Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter at Francesca Today.
1: And you can find me at RZ Greenfield. You should check out another Bloomberg podcast called Benchmark. It examines the inner workings of the global economy. Ooh.
0: Very cool. If you like our show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and rate, subscribe, and especially review us. We always go on and on about reviews. I know you're sick of hearing it, but please review us if you like us because it'll really help spread the word about our show.
1: This show was produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. The head of podcasts is Alec McCabe, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.
0: Got it. We will do that. I totally will.